I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, October 7th, 2014. Coming up, we hear from Vincent Horn, founder of Buddhist Geeks about the convergence of Buddhism and technology and the upcoming conference here in Boulder. Also, we'll have a live chat with CSU professor Dennis Ojima about an ambitious new global research initiative called Future Earth. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. We all use ethanol additives in our gas tanks in the winter in Colorado, but maybe we don't think about where that ethanol came from. Most of it is produced by yeast as they ferment cellulose-containing materials such as corn. The most efficient yield would occur at a high temperature over 40 degrees centigrade, but yeast don't grow well at such a high temperature. Luis Caspeta and colleagues at the Novo Nordisk Foundation Center for Biosustainability in Gothenburg, Sweden, reported in last week's Science Magazine that they had selected strains of yeast to flourish at higher temperatures. They discovered that several of the genes found in these particular yeasts generated steroids that were more sense- more tolerant to heat. Could this more efficient technology reduce the price of ethanol? Hard to say. In the future you'll be able to carry a cosmic ray high-energy particle detector in your pocket. Well, that future is now. Using a smartphone application created by University of Wisconsin physicist Justin Vandenbroek, your smartphone can become a physics lab. Cosmic rays are very high-energy particles that are thought to have been formed in distant parts of the universe by powerful events like exploding stars and objects falling into black holes. Some of the resulting cosmic rays crash into the Earth's atmosphere, where they create showers of particles called muons. When a muon strikes the semiconductor in a smartphone camera, it creates an electric charge that can be seen in the camera's pixels. And the app can then store and analyze the data. The project is called the Distributed Electronic Cosmic Ray Observatory, or DECO. To turn your phone into a cosmic ray detector, you need to download the app and cover the phone's camera lens with duct tape. Got that? The phone can then be placed screen up just about anywhere, even in a desk drawer, since muons can penetrate through many kinds of materials. A phone running the app can be set to record images every few seconds, which are then analyzed to search for particle events. The application currently works on the Android smartphone system, but it's expected to be available for other phones in the near future. To get your copy of the app, check out our blog later at howonearthradio.org for a link. Interested in learning how to build your own geodesic dome greenhouse? Denver Earthship will be hosting a two-day workshop this weekend where participants will build and learn about the structure and benefits of geodesic dome architecture. Check out denverearthship, all one word, dot com under the workshops tab. Late tonight, there'll be a lunar eclipse where the shadow of Earth crosses over the moon. If the skies are clear, you can see the eclipse begin at around 3.15 a.m. Mountain Time, The period of totality, which is the time that the entire face of the moon is covered by Earth's shadow, will last from 4.25 to 5.24 a.m. precisely. So get up early, or go to bed very late, Wednesday morning, to see the eclipse, eclipse, which is the second one that was visible from North America this year.
are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett. Boulder is set to host the fourth annual Buddhist Geek Conference next week, starting on October 16th. Kendra Kruger sat down with one of the original founders to talk about the convergence of technology and Buddhism and what exciting things are happening at the conference this year. Great. Well, welcome to the studio, Vincent. Thank you. It's great to be back. Yeah. So you are part of this organization called Buddhist Geeks. Now, let's just start out. What is a Buddhist geek? Well, um, it's hard to know because there are a lot of different people out there, and I think they relate to it differently. Um, but there's at least two components, right? There's the Buddhist and the geek part. So on the Buddhist side, um, they come from a variety of different backgrounds, um, but they practice usually some form of Buddhist practice, whether it's Zen or insight meditation or even mindfulness. Um, so people with variety of backgrounds in Buddhist practice uh, are interested in Buddhist geeks. And then some people who are just kind of curious, like, what is Buddhism? And then we have the more hardcore geek side. So there, there are a lot of people who are designers, tech geeks, scientists, folks that really have a kind of analytical mind, I'd say, and who have a kind of interest in technology and, and where this is all heading in terms of the evolution of, of humanity and, and how we're sort of interfacing with technology. And um, I'd say the consummate Buddhist geek is someone who is really interested in both and how they can work together. Um, so interested in how technology could support one's inner development, inner practice, and also in how one's inner life can inform how we relate to our use of technology and, and to our lives just in general. For the for the more spiritually cautious out there among us. Mm -hmm. The skeptics. How do you describe, for a beginner level, what is Buddhism? I would say Buddhism is a focus on three areas. One is ethics. You know, how do you live? How do you um, interact with the world? How do you live in a way where you're not causing harm um, and not um, kind of leaving a wake of destruction behind you? Um, and, and the second area is a focus on meditation or concentration or the ability to for the mind to know itself i would say and the third area is really um wisdom so it's what results from living a life based on the understanding that we're all interdependent and in particular and i think this is the really the question at the heart of all contemplative traditions is who are we really you know who is it that's living this life um, who is it that keeps changing? You know, these are the questions that kind of start to come up with with the training and wisdom. So then how do those cores of wisdom, introspection, uh, the ethics, the, the compassion, yeah. how does that then connect with the technology? I mean, I mean, really, the, the question for me has been um, whether you're designing technology or you're using technology, which at this point, the, the distinction between those two is kind of rapidly falling apart. You know, the question is, from where are we doing that? You know, from where is it arising, our motivation to use our smartphones or to use a particular technology or to design or create something? You know, is it coming from a, a, a felt sense of being isolated in a hostile world where we're completely disconnected and where we have to seek for happiness and avoid pain? Or is it coming from a deep sense of an inner uh, wellspring of care and love and compassion, you know, the, the results, I would argue, um, of where it's actually arising from um, completely changes how technology is used and how it's created. Can these methods be used just for 
producing a product that is going to encourage more mindfulness practice practices, or are they also tools for developing technologies in general, like as a as a process development technique? Yeah, I mean, I think both. Um, you know, one can develop intentional mindfulness technologies or contemplative technologies, but then one can also use uh, an understanding of their own mind to inform whatever they're doing, you know, to, to be aware that, you know, the way that we use technologies affects our consciousness. You know, I'll give you an example, the Facebook infinite scrolling mechanism, or Twitter uses the same thing. This is a common uh, tool. Well, the idea behind it is actually to create a sense of not knowing what's coming next and to continue craving what's next. So you keep scrolling, you keep scrolling because you don't, you're not sure what's going to come next. Um, it's the same principle that works with gambling. So actually what that does for most people, and I think why a lot of people can't stand Facebook is that it creates a situation where you become kind of addicted to seeing what you've missed. So that's interesting. You notice that addiction, you notice the craving, you notice like worrying about not seeing what you've missed. Um, and that technology, because it's designed that way, it actually induces craving and addiction and desire in our experience to get us to use the thing. So what if it were designed with the opposite in mind? What if it were designed with the principles that allowed you to feel like completely satisfied by your use of Facebook, where you came away from it going, ah, oh, wow, it felt really good to connect and I feel complete. Um, you know, would that be possible? Um, I hope Facebook's considering that, um, but I, that'd be totally different. I guess then that, that begs the question, what what audiences do these sorts of technologies target? And what is it that will entice people to come back to this sort of technology? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this goes to me definitely to the heart of the question. It even brings up the questions about our, our whole economic system and, and, and the underlying assumptions. Um but I mean, I think one assumption is if people use it more, it doesn't really matter how we get them to use it as long as they're using it. You know, as long as someone's coming back to the app and it's sticky, you know, that's the term that's used in the industry. It's, it's, it, the means justifies the end. But, I, you know, I can think of many things that I use regularly that is not designed to try to get me to use it all the time. It's just because I love it or because it feels good or because it's an important part of my life. You know, I'll, I'll use the Kindle as an example. You know, it allows me to kind of read books and that's all I do when I'm focused on it and I get off of it and I don't feel completely wasted. To me, we have to start questioning as entrepreneurs and technologists and designers and people that are building and creating things and making things, which again is like including more and more people because these tools are becoming more and more accessible. Um, what What is the means? You know, what why are we designing it this way? Um, I think that's a really important question. So let's get back to the conference then. Who are some of the headline speakers this year? Yeah, we've got some really interesting folks um, coming. Um, we've got a whole host of contemplative technologists and scientists. Um, so we've got people who are creating breath sensors and who are using EEG headsets to create new kinds of apps to understand your, your mind and get biofeedback. Um, we've got some really interesting presenters who are basically going to be looking at how do we build technologies that can help us awaken our own understanding of, of mind and consciousness and ourselves and our hearts. Um, so, so that's one kind of area that I'm really excited about. Um, and then we've got, you know, some Buddhist teachers uh, like Pat Roshi O'Hara from the Zen Center in um, 
in New York, and she's going to be coming to talk about converging streams of dharma and media and how all those things connect. Yeah, no, I think there's going to be some some interesting conversations that come out of that. That was Vincent Horn of Buddhist Geeks talking with Kendra Kruger about the upcoming Buddhist Geeks Conference. Find more info and links on our blog, howonearthradio.org. You're listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Susan Moran. Today, we'll explore another lofty topic, planet Earth. Well, in this case, it's a new 10-year research initiative called Future Earth. Its goal is to connect scientists, policymakers, and the business sector to design activities to tackle global environmental change, particularly at local and regional levels. In July, the United States was selected as one of the five international hubs for Future Earth. And the U.S. hub will be based right here in Colorado and managed jointly by Colorado State University and CU Boulder. Dennis Ojima is a lead scientist for the CSU part of Future Earth, and he's a professor of ecosystem science and sustainability. Dr. Ojima is on the phone from CSU to talk about what they've got in store for Future Earth and what's at stake for us all. So, Dennis, welcome to the show. Thank you, Susan. Thanks for this opportunity. Yeah, so it sounds lofty indeed. Could you give us a snapshot of what Future Earth is? What Future Earth is a collection of research um, communities around the world working together um, toward looking at further understanding of how the Earth systems change by human activities and by natural causes, and how do we actually use that information to look at um, new solutions um, to deal with these changes, looking at adaptation strategies in various communities around the world. Particularly adaptation um, to climate change or all kinds of environmental changes? In particular to, to climate change, but then in addition, no, understanding the world with these multiple um, environmental changes taking place that are related to um, changes in biodiversity, um, changes in um, the type of um, uh, ocean uh, pH that may affect um, the marine food cycle, um, looking at water resources um, that um, are occurring because of um, human consumption and human use, as well as then the, the lack and change of uh, lack of water and changes in the water cycle. So a variety of things are occurring simultaneously. Um, climate is one of the big ones, of course, but there's um, other aspects of the economy and um, globalization that also needs need to be considered as we're looking at how the Earth system operates. So it sounds like this is an extension of a bunch of research that's already been done in so many different, not really silos, but different universities or different collaborations. What, what's going to take this, or is it meant to take it to the next level somehow? What we're hoping to do is consolidate the existing research activities into a much more of an integrated, um, almost transdisciplinary way so that we can actually um, look at, you know, sort of the contributions from our understanding of, let's say, how CO2 in the atmosphere is affecting the climate or looking at how um, the different types of social networks are are used to make management decisions on how land is conserved or 
uh, biodiversity is protected. Looking at how do we actually understand those various aspects of what we've been doing in our in our research areas, but then apply it in a more um, integrated way to, to help communities um, to respond or to look at various strategies in adaptation or also reducing their um, effects on these um, environmental um, um, areas that they live in. So is one of the motivations behind this a sense that scientists aren't really getting the message across to policymakers and thus need to lead the charge more aggressively? Or is it really a different kind of collaboration that you're talking about to begin with? Well, it's it's, it's sort of almost the other side of the coin where um, communities of practice, um, local communities like um, City of Boulder or City of Fort Collins or the state of Colorado, um, are seeing a need for additional input into how they look at um, how they manage the, um, their uh, sectors um, under these changing environmental conditions. We're experiencing you know, a number of changes in weather patterns or um, in climate dynamics that make sort of um, the way that we made decisions or manage things in the past um, coming under a new um, sort of um, set of syndromes in, in, in the climate system or environmental patterns. So we're actually seeing a, a, a call for um, how do we use the research that we've developed over the last couple of decades in a more pragmatic way in how management is, is looked into the coming decades. So it's, it's, it's both from the research committee saying, yeah, we haven't really um, packaged our information to be usable as well, but also then from the um, practitioner community, you know, from the decision makers um, who really are dealing with these uh, events, um, saying, you know, how, how can we better prepare ourselves? Can so could, we you, use could you take me down to a really practical level? Like, is there already an example, say, Boulder, Denver, Fort Collins, somewhere on the front range, where there's been a specific question that's been asked? I mean, obviously, the area's dealt with so much fires and droughts and floods, although that's not been linked to climate change in this case, but um, something very practical, or is it too soon for that? Well, it's, it's looking at, you know, sort of how in a, in a scenario where there are conditions of extended droughts, um, how do we actually look at the, the utilization of water, um, and how do we manage for, uh, I guess, competing uses of water within um, the, you know, the Colorado Front Range. And then working with the research community um, to say, you know, some of the things that uh, may occur with the change in rainfall patterns, um, change in, in snow, looking at, you know, dust on snow type events that change the type of runoff that we experience. How does that get incorporated into your water management schemes. Uh -huh. So and we've just got another minute uses. left. I just want to ask you, um, so let's say in another five years, this is a 10-year initiative, what would you hope to have accomplished? What would be one indicator of success in this big, lofty initiative? What we hope to see is that across the world that um, communities are better prepared um, and are thinking about how to incorporate these global environmental changes into their 
um, planning process and how they manage their natural resources so that they're more sustainable and more resilient to hazards. Well, thank you so much. We'll um, follow up in a few months. I know this is the very beginning of a, of a huge project. And I should say on the CU side, your counterpart is Jason Neff at CU Boulder, right? Yes, he's a professor there. But and, this will be a collaboration, not a rivalry? This is very much a collaboration. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dennis Ojima. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Susan. That was Dennis Ojima, lead scientist for the Colorado State University part of Future Earth. For more information on Future Earth, go to futureearth.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producers are Jane Palmer and Kendra Kruger. This week's show was produced by Kendra Kruger and was engineered by Maeve Conran. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett and Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Joel Cutler. Additional music from It's True. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Beth Bennett.